Well, good morning, church. Welcome to another week on our doctrinal series on the Apostles' Creed. Let me pray for us as we explore what this line means for us. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the word read to us. And so right now, as we hear it um, explained and expounded and applied, we ask that you would transform our hearts into the likeness of Christ. Our gracious God, give us the attention that we need and stir our affections to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, one of the virtues of churches like Grace Point, one of our virtues, is our emphasis on critical doctrines and ideas like the crucifixion of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, You probably know that well. It's hard to miss each week, isn't it? We speak about it even today extensively within the fabric of our church liturgy. Uh, It's in our confession of sin. Tommy helpfully explained that. It's in the receiving of grace. It's in the prayer of thanksgiving. But it's also in our songs, right? Our sins there are many, His mercy is more. It's in our prayers, it's in our sermons. And this is absolutely right and appropriate. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23, says we preach Christ crucified. That's such a critical passage. And so a crucified King and Savior, Jesus, is central and critical to our understanding of the Bible. Uh, Not surprisingly, then, it's also core to the Apostles' Creed. That's why over the past few weeks, we've been focusing on the crucifixion, the death of Christ. But you see, while this is indeed a virtue, I think it it can also lead to an imbalance if we are not careful. An imbalance, because you see, our understanding of God and the gospel and the Christian faith cannot be built on just one doctrine. That's partly why we repeat and recite the Apostles' Creed every fortnight. It reminds us there is not just one, but many core doctrines that form our faith, many core doctrines that we cannot afford to forget. So if the crucifixion is a biblical idea that we focus on, then I think the doctrine of the second coming or the return of Christ is a doctrine that we sometimes neglect. And there are a few reasons for this neglect, isn't there? At one level, It's just not as dominant in Scripture, at least in comparison to the death of Christ and related doctrines like justification. It doesn't come up as frequently, and so naturally, it receives a little bit less attention. But at another level, I think we also have some knee-jerk reactions to the way popular culture understands the second coming. For example, I was once at Paddy's Market long before COVID. Um, And, you know, in the city, they have those street food and street clothes. And I saw this really funny T-shirt that says, Jesus is coming, act busy, right? And it's got this Jesus, Obi-Wan Kenobi looking kind of guy, right? And, And it's just this concept that, you know, we just live our lives and Jesus is coming, so we have to look busy when he comes, but otherwise we just do whatever we want. Or there are some kind of popular culture assumptions like, you know, Jesus returns, sort of like raptures us into heaven like a UFO sucking people out, right? So you see in cartoons and movies. And the truth is we're a little bit embarrassed by these sorts of ideas, and so we prefer not to talk about it. At another level, and perhaps a deeper level, we neglect it due to our own bias. It could be a theological bias, that is, we don't think it's important. It could be a personal bias, that is, we see others emphasizing it too much, and so we don't want to become like them. It could be a bias due to ignorance, that is, we've never really thought about it. In any case, I hope our time spent in today's line in the creed will function as a sort of corrective to our imbalance. Our line, if you remember, is, He, Jesus, will come to judge the living and the dead. 
This is a summary of a number of very important Bible passages, but our focus today is Luke 12, 35 verse 40, Matthew 25 verse 1 to 13, which Ashley has so helpfully read out for us. And if you are paying close attention while we're reading, then you'll know that one of the main themes of our passages is the call to be ready. To be ready. Luke 12, 35, be dressed, ready for service. Matthew 25, verse 13, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. But, but, but you see, the idea of being ready or keeping watch is rooted in an even deeper concept. It's actually to be awake. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you are asleep, then you are not ready. You know, the only thing worse than having your house on fire is having it on fire in the middle of the night when you're asleep because you're just not ready. The idea of keeping watch in our passage is to be on the lookout for enemies, especially in the middle of the night. In ancient times, you have guards who stay up at night to keep the community safe. In other words, we have to, and perhaps to subvert the language of our culture, be woke. To be woke, we need to be awake and alert to the issues surrounding us. Why? Both passages make it clear. Because Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. Now, I didn't even realize our catechism would match up so perfectly on this, so I don't have to explain too much. But to judge means to make a final decision. And we know from passages like John 5, verse 26, that one of Jesus' crucial tasks in His second coming is to make a final decision about the righteous and the unrighteous based on their faith in Jesus. And the expression living and the dead means everyone. Everyone. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, male or female, lower, middle, upper class, living or dead, Jesus will pronounce a final judgment on your eternity and destiny. This return is so vital for our Christian living because it radically shapes our expectations and our hopes. But more specifically, listen very closely, this guards us from living a life of regret. It guards us from living a life of regret. That's probably one of our greatest fears, isn't it? Regret, the gripping fear that we can spend our entire lives living for something or someone that just does not matter. Wasting our lives. We need to be prepared. And I want to spend our time this morning considering three implications that it has on us. If you have your outlines, you can follow along with me. The fact that Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead actually enables us to avoid living a life that we will regret. And it means that we must firstly prepare by keeping watch, we need to prepare by serving, and we need to prepare by repenting and believing. And as we work our way through this, I hope it becomes clear to us that it is time for us to get woke because we will never regret living for eternity. It is time for us to get woke because we will never regret living for eternity. Come with me to point one. Because as we begin here, we notice that the idea of preparedness is key in both passages in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. For example, turn to Matthew 25 with me. In the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the ten unmarried women, that's what the virgins are referring to, unmarried women. 
we see that what distinguishes the first group of unmarried women and the other group of unmarried women is that one was prepared with oils in jars and the other was not. In other words, one group was prepared and the other group was not prepared. The same thing is happening in Luke chapter 12. In Jesus' illustration about the servants and the master, what makes a servant good is preparedness. And even more specifically, it's their preparedness to keep watch, to be awake, to be on the lookout. They were prepared to keep watch for the return of Christ. The same principle remains for us today. That's the key to not living a life of regret, to keep watch. But, but what does the return of Christ cause us to keep watch for? How can we be prepared? Well, I think there are at least three things. Firstly, we need to keep watch of our culture. Our culture. Now, by culture, I mean the values, the messages, and the priorities of our world. Because, you see, wherever we work or play, you and I are constantly being catechized by a particular worldview. You think catechism just happens here on Sunday? No. We are surrounded by catechisms, by a particular worldview and value. And you see, I think today that the three most dominant worldviews that are prevalent among us is, number one, your feelings are your God. Number two, your sexuality is your identity. And number three, no one should stop you from expressing both your feelings and sexuality. Three dominant cultural worldviews, ideas, and assumptions that we are breathing in and we may not even realize it. It's so prevalent. Uh, but, but you see, our cultural messages and worldviews change all the time, don't they? If I was preaching this maybe 10 years ago, then I might be talking about, you might remember this from 10 years ago when Pastor Eugene preached this kind of stuff, we talk about materialism, right? We talk about consumerism. We talk about secularism. That's kind of five, 10 years ago. But things change so quickly that I think we now find ourselves in a different world where happiness is no longer seen as the height of satisfaction, Indeed, self-expression is the height of satisfaction today. When you think about it, people are willing to suffer for the sake of self-expression. People are willing to suffer so that no one can stop how I feel and no one can stop who I sleep with. They are willing to lose friends, abandon family, quit jobs just to retain that ability to self-express. Don't you see? But our culture changes all the time in church. We need to keep watch. Because while our culture is not always wrong, we need to recognize that it is rarely, if ever, built upon biblical assumptions. And when they're not based on the Bible, what they do is they lead us astray and distract us from following Christ. They distract us and bring us down rabbit holes which cause us to regret pursuing things that do not matter. Now, now to be sure, I think there are good things in culture that we can affirm. Uh, for example, you know, the, the recent correction on being more sensitive to our feelings and emotions is actually really fantastic. Because, you see, I think we've gone for too long. We, we, for too long, we have suppressed and denied our emotions, even as Christians. We've made the mistake of separating spiritual maturity with emotional maturity. So, so, so we need this corrective. 
we need to see that our emotions are part and parcel of what it means to be human. That our emotions is part and parcel of what it means to be Christian. And yet, I think because our cultural corrective has no biblical foundation, it goes too far. It goes too far and it says that your emotions are your guides, your emotions are your gods. In a similar fashion, the recent attention on sexual identity and expression is good. It's good because it causes us to confront a major part of what it means to be human. Isn't it very interesting? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, you don't have to turn there, but you can just write it down, right? The Apostle Paul says this, Every sin, whatever a person commits, is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his or her own body. Do you see that? Every other sin outside the body, but there is something unique about sexual sin that is a sin committed against his or her own body. The Bible is clear that there is something so unique about sex and sexuality that it requires special attention. You know, maybe we can begin to understand why sexual holiness is such a major theme in Scripture. Friends, this recovery, this new attention is important, especially when I think that Christians are pretty subpar at talking about sex. It feels like a swear word. Everything I say, that every time I say the S word, you'll be like, oh, stop saying that word. I don't feel comfortable, right? But, but it's not. It's a gift from God to be expressed and enjoyed within the confines of biblical marriage. It's good. But don't you see, our culture takes it too far and it makes it your identity. You are who you sleep with. You are who you're attracted to. You are how you feel. So, so friends, there are good things to affirm, but we also need to recognize that if they are not rooted in God's word and will, they will lead us astray. Our culture, and indeed Satan, will use deception and distractions to bring about ultimate destruction. I'll say that again. Our culture and Satan will use deceptions and distractions to bring about ultimate destruction. So part of keeping watch is paying close attention to our culture. To embrace that which is good, but more importantly, to critique and to reject that which violates God's plans and purposes for us and the world. Church, that's part of how we prepare. At least we are drawn into illusions of things that we pursue and chase, and we, we do all these for the wrong reasons, for the wrong things. Here's a very simple point to ponder as we keep watch of our culture. Are you ready? As we look around us, what is our culture saying will make us satisfied? What is our culture saying will make us satisfied? That's just something to look around you, right? The, the messages you hear, the advertisements that you see, the, the sitcoms and television shows and the movies and the music that you listen to. What are they pitching as the good life? What are they saying will make you satisfied? Those are cultural messages to be aware of. But you see, while we could say that we negatively keep watch of threats we should also positively keep watch of eternity. We know what to eject, but we all must also know what to embrace. Because you see, part of the reason we find it hard to prepare for Christ's return, part of the reason why we pursue all the wrong things and live lives of regret is because we are not excited positively about what God has promised. We are not excited, we are not drawn to it because we don't know what lies ahead. Eternity, we have no idea what that looks like. Now, in fairness, I think part of our limited knowledge 
is because Scripture does not give us as much detail as we would like. I remember as a kid uh, saying to my parents, man, if heaven has no cinemas, then I don't want to go. They they say it's good, but how good can it be if it has no movies, right? As a 12, 13-year-old, that's the height of satisfaction, right? So there is ambiguity, and I think this ambiguity understandably causes us to be unsure and therefore unexcited. That's part of the reason why we are not excited, but connected to that. You and I also need to realize that some things are so good that it can be described, but to really understand it, you have to experience it. Some things are so good, indeed, it cannot be described, it has to be experienced. Think about it, you get what I mean, right? That's why I found um, coffee or wine tasting experiences to be a little bit odd. If, If you've done it before, you know what I mean, right? Like, if you go to a specialty coffee shop, They'll make you a coffee, and the barista will say something like this. They'll tell you, ah, yes, yes, uh, this is uh, Ethiopia Uraga. It has complex and expressive florals, stone fruits and citrus. It carries all the flavors of its natural birthplace, Ethiopia. (laughs) And in this, you'll taste hints of jasmine and nectarine, and there's even sweetness that tastes like honeydew melon. That's coffee. And this is like describing a 10-course meal, right? Now, don't laugh. This is actually a description I took off the Campos Coffee website. I love that stuff, right? I subscribe to it, right? But but as you read and you listen to all of this, you think, yeah, that sounds good, but it's just a cup of coffee, isn't it? But then you drink it. And you realize it's a completely different experience. Some things are so good that it cannot be described. It has to be experienced. It's like love, isn't it? If you're madly in love with your spouse, what words can you use to describe that love? Tell me. Parents who love their children, even when they're sick, even when they hurt you, you know that kind of love. What words would you use to describe that? It's the same with eternity. The Bible gives us descriptions, doesn't it? You know the classic passage, Revelation 21, which speaks of a new city coming down from heaven. All of this is ushered by God himself. The greatest prize of all is the presence of God who wipes away every tear stained eye permanently, gets rid of the fallen condition of death. Death no longer is a threat. No mourning, no crying, no pain. Grief has a full stop. Our purposes are renewed. Our work is not frustrated. Our relationships are restored. Even the world's most precious metal, gold, you ready? Is used to pave streets. Isn't that crazy? What we spent our whole lives trying to chase and work for in this world, money, wealth, perfectly embodied in gold, becomes the very thing we step on in the new creation because everything else is infinitely more valuable. Can you imagine that? That's a description. That's ushered at Christ's return where your immune system will stop attacking itself, where you no longer need to be anxious about relationships, where the greatest threat you can think of right now is no more. I can describe it to you from Scripture, but like a cup of good single-origin coffee, I want you to know that the experience is infinitely greater. Can I remind you of that? 
to live in light of that reality and eternity, to keep clinging on to the glories and riches of the new creation. That's how we ought to watch, keep watch, to to look at that and say, that's what I'm waiting for. Because by doing all of this, we can keep watch over our values and priorities here on earth. Keep watch over our values and priorities here on earth. You see, one of the Christian's greatest weaknesses is that we are far too easily impressed by what the world has to offer. We are far too easily impressed by what the world has to offer. Our world says, this is valuable, and we believe it, and we pursue it. Uh, Call this double-mindedness, call this fickleness, or just call it human nature. You and I are prone to believe that all which glitters is gold. So part of keeping watch and guarding from regret is to carefully examine our values and priorities. And then we can begin asking some real questions about whether we are seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness or whether we are pursuing the same things as our unbelieving friends. Now, now to be sure, that's not to say that God hasn't given us good gifts to enjoy, right? Family, career, finances, relationships, hobbies, sights, flavors, warmth, and all the rest of it. All of these, listen very closely, are expressions of God's kindness and generosity towards us. Don't you think it's stunning that God could have created this world black and white? Have you thought about that? Instead, He created the world with color. That's why I wore a blue tie, not a black tie. There is color. Isn't it incredible that... God could have made our staple foods bread and water. Plain bread, plain water. Instead, He gives us flavors. Flavors, especially spice, Mm, curry. Isn't it amazing that God could have created us to be alone? But instead, He gives us a variety of rich relationships that brings out different parts of us. Isn't it just phenomenal that God could have wiped everything out and preserved just one culture, but instead He unites all cultures together so that we can have a deep unity in Christ in the midst of incredible diversity, so that those who bow before the throne of God represent every tribe, tongue, and nation. These are all good gifts, don't you see? But church, I want us to listen very closely. All of these gifts are meant to stir our longing for the giver. All of these gifts are meant to stir our longing for the giver. Can we remember that? Can we pray for that? That when we enjoy a meal to say, Gracious God, we thank you for that which you provided for us. We ask that this food here would stir our longing for the Creator. That we as Christians would receive God's good gifts while not forgetting Him as the one who gives it. Church, watch and guard our values and priorities. It's time for us to get woke because we will never regret living for eternity. But you see, another way our wokeness ought to be expressed is not just by preparing, by keeping watch. As point two says, it's preparing by serving. Here's a simple reality, okay? Having an assured future and eternity enables us to be generous and sacrificial with what we have now. Having an assured future and eternity enables us to be generous and sacrificial with what we have now. 
I want us to notice something very interesting, okay? Come to Luke chapter 12, the passage with me. If you have your Bible, just turn there. This is when a physical Bible um, is a bit of an advantage, but if you have a digital one, that's fine, right? But go to Luke 12, and do you notice the section before our passage on preparedness and watchfulness? Did, did you see it? Glance your eyes a bit to the left, or, or just scroll up a little bit more, right? Do you notice what Luke 12, verse 22 to 34 is all about? Scan your eyes through it. Do you notice the main theme? Jesus is teaching his disciples to not worry about material things. That's what verse 22 says, right? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. He goes on to talk about how God provides for the birds and the flowers, thus reminding his disciples that God will tend to our needs. Let me ask you a question. What gives them this confidence to not worry? That's why the immediate section following, Jesus speaks about his return. You see, the second coming of Christ puts our earthly treasures in perspective. Because Jesus is coming back, because of the rich and glorious reality of the new creation, we can work for earthly treasures without worrying. We can work for earthly treasures without worrying. But here's another thing, okay, ready? Matthew 25. Now turn to Matthew 25 with me. Do you notice the section after our passage on preparedness and watchfulness? After Jesus says in Matthew 25 verse 13, he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What happens after that? Jesus teaches a lesson by telling the parable of the talents. Now, this parable has so many significant meanings and implications, but at the heart of this is actually faithfully stewarding what God has given to us and using it well. It's very interesting, isn't it? That in both passages about Jesus' return, what comes before and what comes after is about what Jesus has given to us here on earth. Luke 12, don't worry. Matthew 25, steward and serve. If you're a visual learner, you can have a look at the shockingly poorly designed diagram I've included in your outlines. I did this on Microsoft Word, as you can see. It may confuse more than it clarifies, but if it helps at all, it illustrates how the return of Christ is actually the key to understanding our passages before and after. We do not worry about material needs because of the assured future we have in Christ. That's on the left. And since we have an assured future in Christ, we can be radically generous in serving God and others with what we have. That's what's on the right. In other words, we prepare for the return of Christ and we guard ourselves from living lives of regret by holding loosely to what we have here on earth by holding loosely to what we have here on earth. What does it look like? Well, one of the ways that this can be expressed is by willing to give and serve. And I think there are three very precious things that we can all give and serve. Everyone has this. Some of us have more of one than the other, but we all possess this. Are you ready? The greatest one and the one that we all have is time. Time. I'm not sure if you realize this, but time is one of your most precious commodities. 
I remember speaking to a millionaire once, and he once told me, right, oh, Elliot, if you lose $1 million, you can make it back. But if you lose one day, you will never get it back. Now, at that moment, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice to have $1 million to lose? It's kind of easy for you to say, right? Like, maybe you can lose it to me. That would be easier, right? No, I'm kidding. But it illustrates something very powerful, doesn't it? Time is something you can never get back. Maybe that's why death is so scary. It's permanently losing time. Time is a precious commodity because once it's used, you can never get it back. This is why one of the best things we can give to God and to one another is our time. Now, people uh, often say to me, Elliot, why are all your apprentices and interns going to pastoral ministry so young? So young. Don't they lack experience? Don't they lack skills? Don't they lack knowledge? And you know what? It's hard to disagree. It's true. They don't have experience. They have very little knowledge. And quite frankly, they don't have much to offer at all, right? Sorry, guys. <laughs> but you know what they have? Their youth means time. It means energy. And God willing, it means longevity. And if you put that with humility and teachability, then God willing, they will grow into men of service. They could have given some of their most energetic years to whatever industries that they were part of. And that would have been fine, right? So many of them were engineers and teachers and academics. They could have done that and that would have been okay. But they have been prompted by the Lord to give these precious and energetic years to serve the Lord. That's something even money cannot buy. Oh, but that's a bit of an extreme example, isn't it? Because I know that all of you give your time to serve in a variety of ways. It's as simple as some of you who get to church early to do formal ministries like setting up. Do you think the gazebo set themselves up? No, it's not a random chaos. People get here early. Do you think the team, the music team sounds as good as they do? I teach them everything that I know, but they practice, right? But there are others who do informal ministries like catching up and encouraging and spending time with each other. Do you realize how precious that is? It's by having lunch with each other and finding out how each other is going. How's work? How's relationships and family? How's this new stage of marriage and parenthood? It's by having long conversations and pouring into each other's lives, sharing in griefs and joys. It's by meeting up one-on-one -on -one or in small groups to read the Bible, to pray, to encourage. It's by helping each other to move houses. It's by giving up our weekends to help coordinate things for those getting married. It's by giving hours and hours to serving, preparing kids' church, editing videos, all the rest of it. Time, don't you see? All of this is precious, and we can give all of these things freely, not because we are reckless, but because we have an eternity where time knows no end. You see, that helps us to be generous, doesn't it? There are so many ways that we can waste our time and regret doing so, but serving your fellow brothers and sisters in the church, taking an interest in them, pointing them to Christ, is one of the best investments that you could possibly make. But it's also your talents, isn't it? It's your gifts, your skills, your expertise. What we all share in common is time. We all have that. But what we don't share in common is our talents, the gifts and the skills we possess. This means that all of us get to serve in very unique ways. 
Uh, one of the benefits of the gig economy is that we've learned to monetize our talents, right? So if you're good at art and design, you can easily create something, set up an Etsy store, sell your product. What a great idea. If you're good at writing and editing, you can charge an hourly rate to read people's essays or thesis or advertisements. You can correct it. You can do grammatical checks and all the rest of it, make a bit of money. How fantastic. Though I think ChatGPT may be rendering out of a job very soon. If you're good at working with your hands, you can start an Airtasker account. You can fix sinks, build furniture, mow lawns, right? If you're good at coding, you can offer services for a price. All of these are good, and it shows us the value of your talents, yeah? Which is why it is all the more incredible when we give all of these things generously as an expression of love and service to God and to others. And listen very closely. I think this is an area where we as a church have lots to be encouraged by. Here at Grace Point, we have so many gifted people who serve, who run our live streams, who cook for gatherings, who design our graphics. Not, not this one, I did this myself, but the good ones they do, right? Who, who build our computers, who do management consulting, who run small groups, who operate our finances. They, they just lay down their talents in service of Christ and the church. People who manage our volunteers, they do all of these things, not for financial gain, but as a sacrificial service to the glory of God and for the good of the church. Uh, but listen, as we pat ourselves up on the back, which we ought to do and give thanks to God, we should also tie our shoelaces even tighter to keep running, shouldn't we? Could it be that God has given you talents, gifts, skills, and expertise, not just to make an income, but to make a difference? To serve? Uh, here's an action to apply. Uh, maybe you can take a pen and paper right now and write down your talents on one column on the left. And then on a column to the right, you can just start creatively jotting down how all of this can be used to serve. To just start writing and just see what comes. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, some of you do this already and I receive some of the most whack ideas in the world and I love it. You are just seeking to apply your creativity and your talents and your skills to serve and, and you're thoughtful about it. What if we all did that? 140, 150, 160 of us, we all lay down our talents to serve in this way. Who knows, right, what good could come out of it? These could be used to strengthen our ministries at church, even start new ones, maybe reach new groups of people. Uh, you won't regret it. But there's also, lastly, uh, our treasures, our finances. You've probably heard it say that one of the last places for a Christian to be converted is his or her wallet. That's a bit of a harsh comment, but there's a degree of truth to it, isn't there? Because it's probably because we associate our sense of security and our stability with dollars and diamonds. That makes sense, doesn't it? Finances, money, material treasures, they can do a lot. And friends, it is precisely because it can do so much that it's a great way to serve. For Christians, perhaps we ought to start realizing that all that we have, our time, talents, and treasures are given not for self-indulgence, but for self-sacrifice. And now to be clear, that's not to say there is no room for enjoyment, right? Our university students remember the seminar I gave on financial stewardship last year, and I spoke about the biblical category of enjoying the fruits of our labor. It's not wrong to enjoy a good meal or vacation, to refresh your wardrobe, to get a new device. That's nothing wrong with that, right? But, but is that the chief end? 
What if our treasures could be used for more? What if our combined treasures could enable us to, I don't know, afford a a place bigger than our current site so that we can have more space for activities, more more seats for people? Look around you. There are only a few chairs left. What if our combined treasures could afford more services and programs to benefit others? What if our combined treasures could enable us to reach more in our sea and our world, to care for the weak and vulnerable in our community and beyond? to create spaces where people can come together and to bless our community. Church, we will hold on to our treasures tightly if we believe that this world is all that there is. But church, we need to get woke and realize the imminent return of Christ. And in that sense, your earthly treasures are actually depreciating by the minute. Uh, You've heard it said when you buy a new car, don't buy a new car, you drive it off a lot. How much does it appreciate? Who knows? 20, 30, 40%, right? Maybe it's the same. Because of eternity, our earthly treasures, while good, are depreciating by the minute, by the second. Perhaps it's time to invest in eternity. For people to know Jesus, to be saved, for people to be discipled, for those in need to be blessed. Permit me 30 seconds to share a particular need. One of the things that's causing me a headache as of late, which is a really good one, is um, our space limitations here at Lidcombe. Uh, I'm not just talking about here, you're seeing it, but those of you involved in like kids' ministry and youth ministries will know that we are stretched to our capacity. Those of you who are in CGs, the reason why you're in a CG of 25 to 30 people is because we have no rooms for smaller spaces. Is it insane that one of the limitations, the bottlenecks for growth is our treasures that God has laid in our pockets? Would you be willing to prayerfully consider how the Lord may be moving you in this way? There is no coercion, there is no force, but maybe prayerfully before the Lord, if God is moving you to give in this way, you can have a chat with me and we can start talking and envisioning about what could be. Church, it's time to get woke because we will never regret living for eternity. We prepare by keeping watch, we prepare by serving, and lastly, we prepare by repenting and believing. So far, the main groups of people I've been addressing are Christians. Uh, And now I'd like to turn to those who are sitting here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. Uh, Because here's the reality. This line in the creed and the corresponding Bible passages demonstrate clearly that there is a reality of judgment. Now, Now, you may find this concept really hard to accept, right? But I suspect that many of us, even if we don't like it, we can actually find comfort if this were true. Because you see, the reality of judgment means that there is a judge. This judge is a God who knows all and sees all. This God is impartial. This God cannot be bought. This God cannot be persuaded by manipulation. He is absolutely just. He will always do what is right. Nothing escapes his sight. So even if our legal system fails, even if our lawyers fail, even if natural justice is denied, none of these things fly under God's radar. Uh, But if this is true, it also means that no one is immune. Both living and the dead will stand before Him. How you respond to Him as your Creator really matters. Will you continue to keep Him at a distance or will you draw near to Him, admitting your need for Him? There's a reality of judgment. But you see, I think there are some people in this room, you've heard that, and you have no problem that there is judgment. 
but you're playing games with God. You're saying to God, look, I like the idea, uh, but I also like my life right now. So I'll trust you. I'll become a Christian, but I'll do one of those deathbed experiences. You may think, well, it worked well for the thief on the cross, right? He was just about to die. He confessed, oh, paradise. It worked well for my uncle. You know my uncle from my mom's side, the second cousin? Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, he did the same thing, right? And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. If that's you, I want to firstly tell you that you, if you think that, you do not understand the gospel. And if you have a near-deathbed experience, you're probably not trusting in Jesus. You're using God. In fact, you are making a mockery out of Him. You are treating God in a way that we wouldn't even treat humans. Using them for our own means. I want to urge you that if being right with God is important to you, and it is, you need to begin by understanding the gospel afresh. Don't play games with God. Because secondly, and more importantly, if you are playing games with God, and remember this, you are not the house. You know the saying in the casino world, right? I don't know this secondhand, right? Don't know the casino, right? The house always wins. Have you heard that saying before? You're not the house. You have no control over whether you're able to draw your next breath. And if you are completely honest with yourself, you yourself will know how fragile life is. Breathing is such a fascinating activity, isn't it, right? Now, we all do it without thinking about it, but now you're all thinking about it, right? And when you think about it, it's kind of weird, isn't it? We all think we have control over it until we have an asthma attack, until we have a panic attack. Until we choke on something. And you know, people will helpfully say, don't worry, just breathe. You're like, you don't think I know that I'm trying, right? Life is fragile and we are in no position to assume that tomorrow is promised. And if there's reality of judgment and there's fragility of life, then there has to be an urgency to your response and my response. If you pay close attention to our text, you'll see another very important theme being repeated. Matthew 25, verse 13, it says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Luke 12, verse 40 says something similar. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It plays on the theme of time once more, time being a precious commodity, but it also emphasizes our helplessness in the face of this. Uh, Friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's time to get woke. To get woke to the fact that you and I are sinners deserving of God's judgment. We have turned our backs against God, the giver of all things. It's right and just for Him to punish this sort of disobedience and rebellion. But to be woke for you today may be to recognize that God has made a way for reconciliation and forgiveness through Christ. That's the heart of the Christian message. That those who trust that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, those who trust that Jesus is the one who has the right to rule over our lives, they will stand before the judgment of God, not in tears and timidity, but with confidence and certainty. And since our passage and the warning is clear, the call is for all of us to do it today. When I was 14 or around 15 years old, my family was living with my cousins um, in their house in Malaysia for a holiday. Uh, there was a day where my parents, on holiday, said, hey, Elliot, let's go shopping. 
Uh, but I was a typical teenager. I showed no interest. I wanted to stay home to play Dota, right? Ooh. Better than League of Legends. It's a computer game, by the way, for those who don't know, right? I said, let's go out. And I said, no, I want to play. But with a bit of persuasion, my parents managed to get me out of the house. And we actually had a really good time walking around the shops. Um, I think we may have bought one or two things. But as we were at the cashier or the register paying for our goods, my dad gets a call from my cousin. And I'm watching this conversation go on. And as the call goes on, my dad's face goes white. He hangs up and he says, the house just got broken into. Now, at that moment, there's just so much going on. I, I, I don't think I fully processed everything, but, but we jumped in the car and we raced home. And when we got there, we saw that the front gate had been completely bulldozed, ripped apart by a car. And as we walked into a house, we saw that everything in the house had been completely turned upside down. My cousin's two cars were missing. All the cash in the house was gone. The computers were gone. Jewelry was gone. Absolutely anything of worth was gone. What's interesting is we noticed that there were some bits that were opened by a key. So this was broken into by someone they knew. But what's even more terrifying is that as I walked into the room where I was meant to stay back, where I was meant to stay and play my computer games, I found a massive knife on the bed about this big. And clearly the burglars were not going to leave any witnesses behind. And to think that I was going to play a game, put my headphones on and yell, stun, 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 right? And this... <laughs> Everything that was precious to us that day was gone. And I always look back to that day with a deep sense of gratitude, right? Because I would not be standing here if I had stayed home that day. To think of what could have happened is just, just shocking, right? I always look back and think how things could have been different. But you know, as I think about it, I, I realize it could be different if we knew it was going to happen. We would have been more prepared. We would have been on the lookout. We would have locked everything up. We would have hired guards. We would have installed more security cameras. We, we might even have called the police and they'd be waiting inside the house. So when the burglars come in, they'd be waving, hello, we've been waiting for you, right? Being prepared would have changed everything. And we would have no regret. It's the same for us, church. And here's the thing. We know that Christ is returning to judge living and the dead. So, church, it's time for us to get woke. Because you and I will never regret living for eternity. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for how the return of Christ changes absolutely everything. And so, gracious God, I pray that we would continue to ponder on the points and apply some of the actions, face the feelings that you have laid upon our hearts, and live in response and obedience. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.